Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, they are celebrating in Ford Nation as Doug Ford's progressive conservatives win a second consecutive majority. For the opposition parties, it's back to the drawing board with some tough questions ahead as both Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca announce they're stepping down as leaders. And Ontario records its lowest voter turnout ever. Yikes. It's Friday, June 3rd, 2022, the day after E-Day. So let's get to it. Well, as we have every Friday during this writ period, we're happy to welcome Sabrina Nanji from the Queen's Park Observer with us to start recapping some of the biggest stories of last night. And obviously, Sabrina, the biggest story is Doug Ford's successful re-election with more seats than in the previous Legislative Assembly. There have only been five premiers in Ontario history who have won majority governments and then won more seats in a subsequent election. And now Ford is one of them. What did you see in Ford's victory speech last night that you think is worth mentioning the day after? Well, I think, you know, part of this resounding second majority mandate that Ford got is just how much he's changed over the last four years. And and that was kind of um, alluded to in his speech a little bit, you know, that he's got support of certain unions, private sector unions, uh, you know, some organized labor groups that would have typically supported the liberals maybe in the past. Uh, That's not something we expected from Doug Ford and and the conservatives. Uh, He he definitely gave them a shout out. Uh, He's kind of came to power in 2018, promising all these austerity measures. Remember, there was that first uh, budget that had all those cuts in it that wound up in his first finance minister, Vic Fideli, getting demoted. Uh, And it seems clearly like he's learned his lesson, right? Um, I think there's probably a lot of factors at play that helped that win along uh, that, that we can talk, talk about, but um, I think the the real test and question now is going to be, is this really the new Doug Ford? Has he learned his lessons from 2018 and earlier on in his mandate? Is he really changed? I think um, I heard in his speech last night, he said efficient. He kind of said it again today at his press conference talking about efficiencies, kind of walked back, um, you know, that that re-election platform slash budget won't exactly look exactly the same, um, which he he promised it would. Uh, Obviously, just as an aside, technically it couldn't have if they were going to follow through on that promised to raise uh, the ODSP rates because that wasn't budgeted initially. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be the next uh, little while is going to be about holding him to account uh, whether or not he goes back to that cut, cut, cut forward that he used to be um, and how much he'll benefit from a weakened opposition as they kind of, uh, you know, are preoccupied with their own leadership contests. You mentioned how much uh, he has changed. And I mean, one of the things that struck me about his speech last night, uh, and again this morning, was that uh, he was uh, pretty magnanimous uh, to the other opposition party leaders. Of course, you can be magnanimous when you win. Um, I, if I, I cannot remember right at this moment whether he had even sort of pro forma language in his speech last time around about, uh, uh, you know, thanking the, the, the leaders uh, he defeated. But uh, it, it seemed more sincere this time and, and certainly in the last legislature they didn't 
they were not magnanimous indeed. Uh, there was a lot of vitriol uh, between uh, the Tories and uh, the opposition parties. Who knows what's going to happen next exactly? But uh, one thing that we do know about the opposition parties is that uh, the leaders have all changed. Uh, the, the leaders of the New Democrats and the Liberal Party, uh, Andrew Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, announced uh, last night within minutes of each other, uh, they are stepping down. And I'm going to keep working to earn your confidence each and every day. I'm going to keep doing that. But tonight, it's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton, to hand off the leadership of the NDP. And you know what? It makes me sad, but it makes me happy because our team is so strong right now. Now, the New Democrats were re-elected as the official opposition. and we saw a side of Andrea Horvath that uh, I don't think we've seen before. Uh, she was actually tearful. I, I have watched her in politics for more than a decade now, and I don't think I've ever seen uh, tears in her eyes, even when there were some, you know, some tough elections for her before now. Um, Sabrina, thoughts on who might replace Horvath as the next NDP leader? Yeah, the rumor mill is already churning out some names, of course. Uh, they have a bit bit of a bigger pool to pick from if we're talking about, you know, MPPs running for leader. Uh, you know, Marit Stiles' name comes up quite a bit. She won her seat back in Davenport. Uh, you know, she served as the education critic for the NDP. She's, uh, you know, she's a definitely a strong contender. Then there's Kristen Wong-Tam over in Toronto Centre, I think, a spot that the Liberals uh, were, ho- were hoping to win back. That was a previous Liberal bastion. Um, and then there's uh, Joel Hardin, who kind of didn't really rule out uh, his own bid over in Ottawa. Uh, you know, Catherine Fife, I think, is also uh, another strong contender. She served as finance critic. Um, but they, they, like, I think, you know, of course they've got big shoes to fill, not least because Andrew Horvath uh, was leader for so long. But this is like a moment of reckoning for the NDP. Obviously, you know, the message after losing, um, you know, a, a bunch of seats, uh, there's still official opposition, but it's still a loss, no doubt, uh, you know, over losing spots in Windsor, in the Brampton area, uh, in the north, too, to, to the conservatives, uh, not even to the liberals. Uh, this is like a moment for them to kind of maybe... Uh, you know, shift. And it's it's definitely going to be a, a tough race, I think. We're going to have an interim leader first from them. And so I'll be curious to see how that goes. But uh, absolutely, you know, this is going to be a big moment for both of the, the NDP and the Liberals. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, what is Doug Ford going to be doing with his big majority while these other parties are uh, busy, you know, uh, sort of with, with their own internal issues? Whatever he wants. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) That will be the case until the two opposition parties uh, find permanent replacements, that's for sure. Uh, Okay, you talked about the NDP. Let's take a look at the Liberals now. Certainly not the night Stephen Del Duca and the Grits had hoped for. I just want to say again, I have no doubt that the women and men that Ontario Liberals have elected to the legislature will do their part, in fact, will do more than their part, to help grow a new and energetic progressive movement here in Ontario. It will, however be a movement that will be led by a new leader. Earlier this evening, I informed our party president of my decision to step down from the leadership of our party, and I have asked him to meet with the executive to set a leadership contest for as soon as is reasonable. Stephen Del Duca again lost his seat to the PC's Michael Tobolo. That's two elections in a row in Vaughan Woodbridge. He did announce uh, during the course of... um, you know, what was a very sad uh, uh, resignation speech last night that he would step down as leader. Uh, the party did once again not 
uh, attain official opposition status, which I think is 12 seats, and they didn't get there. They only got one more, up to eight. Uh, we haven't seen this since the 1940s, where the liberals were the third place party, two elections in a row. So let me ask you the direct question, Sabrina. Do you think the liberals are in the midst of a genuine existential crisis right now? Yeah, how could you not be, right? I think even what the polls were saying throughout this campaign had the NDP and the Liberals kind of jockeying for second place. Obviously, you know, there was a huge gap last night. Uh, I think a lot of people had attributed, um, at least experts and pollsters that I've been speaking with, had suggested that, you know, the Liberal brand was still strong in Ontario. And and I think, you know, last night was probably a wake-up call to a lot of people. Um, the Liberals I talked with said that the absolute lowest bar for Del Duca to stay on as leader um, there's like an automatic post-election leadership review would be to get that recognized party status, which you're right, is 12 seats. Um, I think, you know, your listeners especially will know that the previous threshold for that status was eight seats, which they would have gotten before the conservatives raised it. But, you know, they lost a lot of seats that they were expecting to win. And just some... Uh, you know, insider gossip, if anyone's interested, I heard that there's a lot of organizers that were really mad because in the final hours, you know, the get out the vote machines, everyone, um, uh, or I should say like a lot of resources and volunteers were ended up going to Vaughn Woodbridge and that's where they were sent. And then we saw, you know, it wasn't even quite really close with uh, Tobolo hanging onto that seat for the PCs. And there were a lot of close races that I think the liberals thought that they could have won, maybe gotten them closer to that threshold for recognized status. Um, Eglinton Lawrence is one, Willowdale is another, you know, it was kind of a, a much narrower margin of loss there. Um, and, we, and we all know, you know, that recognized status comes with a lot of added benefits. You get more cash, uh, more resources like research staff that really helps you fulfill your legislative duties, do your job as official opposition. So, you know, we were talking about how maybe boring this campaign has been. Election night turned out to be very explosive, um, but also it kind of felt like inevitable that these guys couldn't, you know, hang on to their spots. Horvath and Del Duca um, after that showing. But certainly, I think, yeah, there's a lot of uh, internal uh, looking in the mirror happening over in those in those camps right now. Well, I mean, the other thing that the, the gossip mill has to be talking about right now is who could potentially replace Stephen Del Duca. Uh, the, you mentioned the, the uh, NDP have more uh, potential candidates to pick from, but the, the Liberals do have some. You have names like Stephanie Bowman and Ted Shue, who uh, both won seats for the first time. And then you've got people who were reelected, like uh, Stephen Blay and uh, Mitzi Hunter. Uh, any thoughts on uh, who, who might, might rise to the top on that list? Yeah, I know Mitzi Hunter's name has been bandied about, but I think that after, you know, a pretty poor showing in the last leadership race in, in 2020, uh, I, I don't know if if they're going to uh, give her another shot at that. One name I have heard is uh, Mary Margaret McMahon, the former councillor who won in Beaches East York. They managed to wrest that seat from the NDP. But uh, one liberal told me that if, you know, she did make a bid for leader, then she would likely get support of Del Duca's team, uh, and that would be poison to her and her leadership bid. So uh, she might be thinking twice about about that one, and and you know whose support she's got. But uh, I think we might see people come from outside of the party here too. You know, uh, again, just like the NDP, it's a moment of reckoning for the Liberals. Um, 
I, I think a lot of people wanted a more progressive uh, leader. You know, one of the, the left leaners, a self-described left leaner in the party told me that, uh, that that's what they would be looking for. Uh, and I think, you know, just on the flip side of this, you know, Horvath and Del Duca's future prospects. I know Andrea Horvath kind of left the door open to a possible municipal bid, maybe running for Hamilton mayor, uh, you know, returning to her roots on, on council because, of course, the timing works out where you could make a municipal run with those elections that are coming up in October. Um, now, there, uh, you know, the the word on the street is that Del Duca could make a bid for Vaughn mayor. Uh, you know, voters didn't really like him there provincially, but maybe they would give him a chance municipally um, because Mayor Maurizio Babalacqua said that he won't be running again. So uh, it, it might, we might not have seen the last of Horvath and Del Duca. I mean, I just have to throw one wild card in here because I, I, I confess that I haven't heard anything about this yet, but I want to maybe be a bit of a troublemaker here. Uh, Nate Erskine-Smith, the federal MP for Beaches East York, uh, independent-ish liberal, um, would be a, a representative of Beaches East York, could, in theory, if he won the leadership, ask Mary Margaret McMahon to step aside, and then he would almost certainly win that riding in 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 a walk boy um, are you getting out I over have your skis i actually heard it no i have <laughs> i have heard that name it, uh, uh his name came up with uh yvonne baker too someone said someone sent me a text suggesting yep. those two so you might have accepted that one <laughs> uh, baker's fiance lost uh, the election last night so that might be the way that that family gets back in Amanda Simard from Eastern Ontario. Uh, maybe we should do a quick word here on the right-wing parties, the New Blue Party and the Ontario Party, which were new entrants into this race. They didn't win any seats, and nobody expected that they would. They did attract uh, more than 200,000 votes between the two of them. Uh, what's the path forward for those two parties now, Sabrina? Well, I think, yeah, I don't think anyone really expected them to actually get a seat. Uh, but, of course... We have this thing called the per vote tax subsidy in Ontario. And so obviously this is just early data, early numbers right now. But if they do meet that threshold, which is uh, 2% of the vote overall or 5% in any given riding. And of course, you know, they ran a full slate of candidates. So it, it might happen uh, that they would get like this quarterly subsidy. And that goes a long way, you know, to having resources uh, in a campaign. But I think... Uh, it kind of went the other way, you know. Um, we saw this resounding uh, majority for Doug Ford, and I think for those so-called fringe parties uh, on the on the right of the spectrum, they a, a lot of them kind of came out of the pandemic, right, and some of the restrictions there. I think because we have virtually no restrictions right now in Ontario, it's summer, no one's talking about the, the pandemic, everyone's kind of COVID fatigued. Uh, they didn't really have much of a of a soapbox to stand on this time around, but certainly especially for the new blues, you know, having a full slate of 124 candidates when not even the liberals could do that was in itself, you know, something for them, uh, I think, as a startup party to be proud of, whatever you think of their, uh, you know, policies. They did get 2.7% of the total vote in Ontario last night. So that certainly meets that threshold. And I think, well, Belinda Carajalios, who ran in Cambridge, she certainly did better than the 5% that is required in one riding. So yeah, they're on their way to a per vote subsidy, I guess, which will be a, a good infusion for them. Uh, in terms of their finances. John Michael, you got one more? Well, I was just going to add to that that I think also uh, Jeff Birch won his seat in Niagara uh, for the NDP, but uh, the margin between him and the Tory seems to have been smaller than the uh, votes that the New Blue Party took away. Uh, so that might be one of those cases where the Tories lost a winnable riding because of these new 
further right parties, something that we have talked about quite a bit on this podcast as a possibility. It, it may have manifested. <laughs> um, Sabrina, I guess just one last question. Uh, you know, did you see uh, anything really of significance come out of the Premier's news conference this morning? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I kind of was suggesting it earlier, sort of reading between the lines. Um, he used that magic forward word efficiencies, which in Ford speak sometimes means cuts. And I think that, uh, you know, if we remember, you know, that unpopular budget in 2018 that had all those cuts. And then in the last six months, they've completely changed their tune when they know they're staring down the possibility of reelection. Um, there might be some uh, de- decisions that, that people aren't happy with. But I think, you know, uh, it remains to be seen. And of course, it does seem like Ford has learned his lessons. You know, he kind of shouted out uh, uh, workers, working class people. Those are the voters that he ended up picking up, uh, obviously, you know, not exactly the Bay Street type folks. Uh, It's more about blue collar workers. Uh, I know that a lot of public sector unions are upset about Bill 124, that wage capping legislation, Um, but that was only ever going to be in place for three years. So I think what happens next on that front will be will be interesting to watch. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, making sure that Ford is held accountable and that he follows through on some of these promises, he's got this big issue of affordability, uh, you know, to to tackle. Uh, and there is only so much you can do in the provincial jurisdiction on that. But he has this resounding majority. You know, the province has spoken uh, and now it's, it's up to him to really follow through on it. And there's really, you know, not not much of an opposition. So we'll see uh, where it goes from here, uh, you know, whether it's really the new Doug Ford or he's going to revert back to his uh, 2018 more unpopular self, you know, the guy that got booed at a Raptors game. Uh, There was a magnanimous tone in his news conference this morning, which uh, I think if you watched it and you didn't vote for him, uh, you might have found encouraging. But as we always say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and we'll see how long that lasts and whether there's anything really behind it. Sabrina, we appreciate you having joined us every Friday during this writ period. Take good care, and we remind everybody that the Queen's Park Observer is your work, and uh, we commend it to, to others to read as well. So take care. Thanks. Let's uh, not wait four years to do this again. <laughs> That's a <the> deal. <laughs> Bye, guys. Okay, John Michael, uh, you and I are going to continue this bonanza edition of this podcast today because there's sort of a lot to pick up on from themes of last night. Uh, Another, I think, one of the very big stories is uh, how the PCs won. And normally they win by taking seats away from the Liberals, but they didn't do that last night. They took them away from the NDP last night in Brampton Center, where Deputy Leader for the NDP Sarah Singh lost to Charmaine Williams in Brampton East where the PC's Hardeep Graywall beat out Garatan Singh, the brother of the federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. In Brampton North, where Graham McGregor took a seat away from the NDP. In Thunder Bay, Atacokan of all places, where the PC's Kevin Holland picked up a seat there, again away from the NDP. In Timmins, where the PC's George Pyrie took a seat away from Gilles Bisson, who'd only been at the legislature since 1990. And then three other NDP strongholds in southwestern Ontario uh, went to the PCs. Windsor Tecumseh, uh, the former Tecumseh town councillor Andrew Dowie picked up the seat, hadn't gone Tory in 60 years. In Essex, the PCs Anthony Leardy, former deputy mayor of Amherstburg, picked up the seat after the NDP's Taras Natashak decided not to run again. Again, six decades since the Tory won that riding. And okay, this isn't southwestern Ontario, but it's it's a little west of where we are. Hamilton East Stony Creek, Neil Lumsden, the former Tiger Cat, an unusual situation there because you had an NDP candidate 
and a former NDP candidate running as an independent. So you think, okay, they're going to split the left-wing vote. But even if you put their votes together, it still wouldn't have been enough to overcome Lumsden's victory. So the obvious question here, the private sector union endorsements, how much did all that help? I mean, it certainly doesn't seem to have hurt. You know, people will parse these numbers from now until Judgment Day, and perhaps somebody will disprove this theory. But based on not just how much the Tories won, but where they won, where they took those marginal seats. It certainly looks like uh, the uh, Progressive Conservative Coalition now includes at least some of a, a, a large portion of organized labor, not public sector unions, uh, which uh, are not happy, have not been happy with the PC government uh, over Bill 124, the, the wage containment uh, uh, law that the, the PCs passed in the last legislature. Uh, but they have had success, the, the Tories have had success with private sector unions, especially in the building trades. Uh, no mystery there. The, the government is proposing to build uh, oodles of new public uh, utilities and, and, and public services, and that will mean lots of jobs for the building trades. Uh, you know, a lot of credit has to go towards Monty McNaughton uh, has just done a ton of work. Uh, you know, I've, I've described this before, both to bring some unions to the Tory party, but also to bring the Tory party to the unions. Uh, the the not that long ago, the Tories were really, really institutionally hostile to organized labor um, as a you know a constraint on business. And uh, McNaughton, I think, deserves a lot of credit for uh, softening the uh, Tory opposition and getting them to understand the the political opportunity there. Uh, just uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't know what else to say about this except that uh, if this proves to be durable. And it might not. Fortunes change in politics. That's why we like to cover it. Uh, but if this proves to be durable, uh, it will be. Uh, it, it could reshape politics for quite some time to come. Now, even in the best elections for parties that win, usually there's a cabinet minister or two that lose. But that did not happen last night. Every single cabinet minister in Doug Ford's previous government was reelected, and the only really close call was Doug Downey, the Attorney General in. Barry Springwater Oromodonte. He ran against the mayor of Barry, Jeff Lehman, who was extremely popular when he ran municipally. And at one point in the evening, the two were separated by two votes. They each had something like 15 or 16,000 votes, and they were two votes apart. In the end, Downey won it by 609 votes. Now, there's another really good story on the night about um, Tory fortunes in the riding of Haldeman Norfolk, which is normally a very safe Tory seat. And remarkably, they did not win it last night. What happened there? This is just a, a bit of a funny story. Uh, as you say, Haldeman Norfolk, I mean, if we had dictionaries for this kind of thing, we would be like in the dictionary as the safe Tory seat. It is, you know, always in, in my lifetime, and I think several others, is represented by Tories, uh, both federally and provincially. Um in this case, Bobby Ann Brady uh, will be the province's only independent MPP in the next legislature. She was elected with 35% of the vote last night, uh, running against the Tory candidate Ken Hewitt, uh, who was the mayor for Haldimand. Now, the wrinkle here is that the riding was previously held by Toby Barrett, who had represented the riding for seven terms and opted not to seek an eighth. Um, but 
Barrett was not granted the uh, courtesy of either announcing his own retirement or naming his uh, preferred successor as the PC candidate. The uh, premier's office or the the, the leader of, uh, leader's office from the party uh, preempted him announcing uh, before they even got to announce his retirement. They, they announced who the PC candidate would be. Uh, uh, Barrett, I, not unreasonably was a bit uh, cheesed off by that uh, and backed Brady's independent run. And, you know, we sometimes talk on this podcast about, you know, is a seat uh, a seat that's held by the party or is it held by the local member? And this is one of those cases where it's kind of both. Haldeman Norfolk still very much a Tory riding, but at least last night it was also Toby Barrett's riding. And that is a great lesson from this. Don't screw with Toby Barrett because <laughs> he got his revenge last night. That's for sure. Well, you know, um, let's face it. I mean, um, Bobby Ann Brady is a conservative person. She's uh, inclines conservatively. And uh, it wouldn't shock me if at some point somebody made an outrage from the PC caucus saying, listen, we know you got elected as an independent, but why don't you come sit with us anyway? We'll watch for that in the days it's ahead. It's definitely more fun to be in the government caucus benches than not. For sure. For sure. Um, you know what? Every election makes history in some respects, and last night was no exception because I think this is the first time that five black women were elected in the same single provincial election. Let's name them. Mitzi Hunter in Scarborough Guildwood for the Liberals, Laura Mae Lindo in Kitchener Centre, and Jill Andrew in Toronto St. Paul's for the NDP, and Charmaine Williams in Brampton Centre, and Patrice Barnes in Ajax for the Progressive Conservatives. And I think, I haven't got this confirmed yet, but I think Charmaine Williams and Patrice Barnes are the first black female PC MPPs ever elected. So history in the making last night in that regard. Yeah, and you know, we can talk about both the... Um let's say, the, the noble and the cynical here. Uh, you know, it's it's good to see that the Tories can reach out to uh, less represented groups and uh, uh, cultivate uh, ca winning candidates from, uh, you know, underrepresented demographics in Ontario. So uh, good on the, the PC party for that. Uh, but of course, it also shows that they can be rewarded uh, in, a, in a partisan fashion, in an electoral fashion, when they do that. So uh, sometimes in politics, people uh, do the, the right thing for... Maybe not always the most noble reasons, but they won. And, uh, you know, now the legislature will be uh, more diverse and have some more diverse perspectives in it. Let's also take a look at Perry Sound Muskoka, because, of course, uh, we talked endlessly here about the fact that Mike Schreiner spent uh, oodles of time in that central Ontario riding trying to win a second seat for the Greens. It did not happen. Graydon Smith, the Tory candidate, won by 2,100 votes over Matt Richter, who had been hoping for the big breakthrough. It was his fifth attempt to win this seat. You know, the good people of Perry Sound Muskoka can be very quirky sometimes in their choices. I remember back in 1981, Ernie Eves, who of course went on to become premier, he won that riding by six votes. And in the 2006 federal election, Tony Clement, in a, again, an excruciatingly safe Tory seat, won it by 28 votes. So yes, it does vote conservative, but it sure makes Tory candidates sweat a lot. My bigger question now is about the Greens. They still have just one seat, Mike Schreiner's. They came second in a couple of ridings last night. And I guess I want to know, are they essentially a one-man band of Mike Schreiner at the end of the day, and that's all they're destined to be? What do you think? 
I mean, it's possible, right? It, you know, look at the example of the federal party. They uh, have two MPs after uh, decades of effort uh, to try and improve on that. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm when Elizabeth May first got elected, but uh you know, that has not uh, materialized into them being a uh, a really major force in Parliament. Uh, and then, of course, we all witnessed what happened with uh, Annamie Paul and uh, uh, just a, a bunch of backbiting and knife fighting uh, internally in the Green Party over that. Uh, you know, lots of love, lots of respect for Mike Schreiner, uh, you know, really across all the parties. Uh, you know, he, he really is one of the more respected MPPs in the legislature. And I think a lot of people, even in other parties, will be happy to see him returned. But not a lot of evidence yet that they've been able to grow the brand beyond just Mike Schreiner, the happy warrior uh, for the Green Party. Uh, even uh, the the deputy leader, Diane Sachs, uh, I should say one of the deputy leaders, uh, Diane Sachs in University of Rosedale, only got about 16% of the vote. Uh, I believe she still came in fourth behind the Tory in, in University of Rosedale. So that's not really the showing they were hoping for at all. Um, so, you know, they, they they clearly need to find some way to, to grow, you know, because I, I don't want to be grisly about it, but Mike Schreiner is not going to be in politics forever. Um, you know, they are very happy to have seen Schreiner reelected. Uh, it's the first time that a Green MPP has ever been reelected. Uh, but, you know, Perry San Muskoka really was this um, unique opportunity, you know, a perfect storm. They had no liberal candidate, no former sitting Tory looking to be reelected. Uh, they're not going to get a chance like this again, or at least they can't really depend on a chance like that coming back. And they got really just achingly close and still lost. But I, number one you know, message I want to get out, uh, it's time for unity. We want to make sure we unite this province, we want to move forward, because it's not us versus, versus people down the street, it's Ontario versus every jurisdiction in the world. We're competing for every job, every dollar of investment. Right here in Ontario, we have the best, the brightest people, we have the ingenuity, and uh, we're going to take on the world and we're going we're gonna to win. That's Doug Ford from this morning's news conference, uh, echoing that magnanimous approach that I referred to earlier in our conversation with Sabrina. Ford making clear that the progressive conservatives are a big tent party, and uh, his pledges to seek unity were impressive in his victory speech. However, let's also remember, Doug Ford was as successful as he was in part because he kicked all the anti-vax, anti-lockdown faction out of his party over the past two years. Uh, they went off and they created their own other parties, and despite all of that, uh, they really didn't pillage much of Ford's vote at all. He still won a bigger mandate despite that. Yeah, you can contrast what has happened in Ontario in the last week to the current federal conservative leadership race. Uh, they are trying to uh, accommodate all of those uh, disparate voices. They're, I guess, trying to build a big tent of their own. But it's really creating just a, a brutal, brutal leadership contest as a result. And can I, can I just, I'm going to be a little bit, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, maybe narcissistic about provincial politics here. <laughs> um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about how Doug Ford has changed in the last four years. And I think there are ways that he has changed and ways that he has not. But I do think the office has changed him. And one of the things that provincial politics uh, does to people is you actually have to focus on real problems that have to be solved. Schools have to be open. Hospitals have to work. 
transit systems have to be funded, cities have to work, and those are all the purview of the provincial governments in Canada. And the federal government does lots of important things, but I think federal politics is more divorced from the real-world concerns of people's everyday lives, and so federal politics becomes more about symbolic fights. And I think that's what you're seeing with, like, look at Pierre Poilievre's anti-mandate push. He, he introduced a private member's bill uh, in Parliament this week uh, saying that it would forbid mandates. And it's about the the federal vaccine mandates, which, okay, air travel, I grant, is, is a, a big-ish one. But, like, federal public health policy is not even a secondary. It's like a third or fourth order story in the story of Canada fighting the pandemic. So uh, largely a, a symbolic issue that is going to get fought in an arena that it just does not matter. And I think one good thing about provincial politics and about this election is that it was fought on concrete issues that do actually matter. You know, I'll join you in that little narcissistic view, because uh, when I get into these kinds of arguments with people who think federal politics is the be all and end all, I always say, OK, you guys run the army and you deliver the mail and you transfer a lot of money to the provinces. What else do you do? And it, it tends sometimes <laughs> to be a short conversation. Uh, anyway, I know what you mean. Now, let's we, we, we have to talk about turnout last night because uh, 43% of the electorate turned out to vote. That is the worst number ever. And we have to do the math here. The progressive conservatives got almost 41% of the 43% that voted. So really what we're saying is fewer than 20% of Ontarians voted for Doug Ford, and yet he's got 100% of the power at Queen's Park. And to be clear, I'm not making a partisan comment here. You could have said the same thing in 2014 when Kathleen Wynne got 38% of the 51% of people who voted for her, which means both leaders got 100% of the power with less than 20% of Ontarians actually voting for them. I mean, that does raise some issues about legitimacy, and it does raise some issues about whether um, there is a greater appetite now to change the way we elect politicians, which we've been doing this way since Confederation. What do you think? Well, I think if we're going to be honest about this, like the Tories, both, I think, for a uh, sincere reason, like conservatives are averse to change. That's sort of like in the definition of the party. And the conservatives feel an attachment to the way we have elected people in this country since, as you say, 1867. Uh, so the real obstacle to changing the electoral system, if it's if it's going to happen at all in Canadian politics, the NDP and the Liberals have to agree on what the change would be. That has not happened ever in Ontario politics or Canadian politics federally. Uh, you can see what happened with the Liberals after 2015 federally, where Justin Trudeau was uh, elected on a promise that it would be the last first-past-the-post election could not come to an agreement with the NDP or the Conservatives, for that matter, about what should replace them. The Liberals now, I think, um, institutionally would prefer to see uh, systems changed towards a, a ranked ballot system. The NDP oppose that because they think it would uh, structurally prefer the Liberals over the NDP and, and permanently marginalize the NDP. I'm not sure that's actually true in practice, but it, uh, it it's the root of the disagreement. And clearly, I mean, you know, it could change. The, the Liberals have some soul searching to do, and maybe they will decide that actually proportional representation sounds good right about now. Uh, but it hasn't changed yet, and I'm not optimistic it will. Well, I'm not going to make the argument for proportional representation, but those who want to make that argument would say... 
Well, they'd point out these numbers. They'd say the progressive conservatives got 40.88% of the vote last night, and that was good for 83 seats. The liberals got 23.76%, good for eight seats. The NDP, almost the identical figure, 23.73%, good for 31 seats. Obviously, the NDP vote a lot more efficient when it has to be broken down over 124 ridings. Look at this. The Greens got almost 6% of the vote. That was good for one seat. And the independent candidate last night got a half a percent of the vote. Good for one seat. So there are these anomalies that are created in the first past the post system. But of course, it has its other virtues as well. Now, let's talk about the total vote count. Every party except the Greens lost votes last night relative to where they were in 2018 because, of course, the turnout was so bad. 2018 was supposed to be a once-in-a-lifetime meltdown for the Liberals. Well, as we saw in 2022, fewer flesh-and-blood voters were willing to mark a ballot for Stephen Del Duca than were willing to do it for Kathleen Wynne four years ago. Give us some of the numbers. You know, the numbers here really are uh, uh, impressive in a way. Uh, The Tories went from 2.3 million votes in 2018 to 1.9 million votes last night. The NDP, and here's really like the big chunk of the story, 1.9 million votes in uh, 2018 to 1.1 million uh, last night. The Liberals from 1.12 to 1.10. So uh, more or less the same, but like still a a small drop from where they were in 2018. Uh, And then the Greens went from 264,000 to 276,000. So I just want to focus on the NDP there for one second, because, you know, of the the missing votes from 2018, if you want to call it that, uh, the, really the lion's share, uh, perhaps, you know, the biggest story of the night, if you want to talk about it, in, in uh, about what changed in terms of turnout, is uh, the NDP lost, uh, oh, geez, almost half of their votes, um, but they managed to hold on to a bunch of seats. Uh, the Liberals held about level, held on to their seats, but the Tories just they didn't even win a huge number of new seats they in fact lost seats or sorry they they didn't even win a huge number of new votes they lost votes they just lost fewer votes as a share of the overall total um so it's uh, you know <laughs> what can i say it's funny how this math works out sometimes And I don't mean to dump on Mike Schreiner's enthusiasm, but in the waning days of the campaign, he talked about all the momentum he was seeing out there all over the place. And I appreciate that you got to sort of fight the good fight and make it look good. But come on. I mean, the Greens went from 264 to 276. Over 124 ridings, they picked up 12,000 votes. I mean, you've got to ask some fairly existential questions about how impactful the Green Party is able to be in Ontario politics right now. And these are things I think we'll pursue in future editions of this podcast. But uh, anyway, the big mo just wasn't there for anybody, let's face it. Now, let's spare a word for the two writings in which we live. This will be our moderator's prerogative here, because I think the results uh, were actually quite surprising in both. JMM, you live in Beaches, East York. That was the one liberal gain in the 416 last night. Right. I've actually had a hard time remembering it uh, all morning because uh, Mary Margaret McMahon was a city councillor for some time in in this area. uh, And then it is now an elected MPP. Uh, She won the riding that had been held by the NDP, uh, by Rima Burns-McGowan in the last legislature. Uh, 
McGowan opted not to run again. Uh, so this is a, a liberal gain at the expense of the NDP. Uh, you know, considering the tail from the rest of the province where the Liberals really did not uh, gain any other uh, seats, didn't really make any other uh, breakthrough. It's fairly a big win for her. Uh, And what about in your writing? Well, I live in Toronto St. Paul's and the smart money, so-called, was on the Liberals taking this seat back from the NDP because it had been one of those very safe Liberal seats in the past. But like University Rosedale and Spadina Fort York and Toronto Centre, Toronto St. Paul's stayed NDP. It did not revert back to the Liberals, and Jill Andrew defeated Dr. Nathan Stahl by 1,100 votes. And I was sitting on the set last night with Sherry DeNovo, the former Parkdale High Park NDP MPP, and even she was shocked by that result. She kept elbowing me during the course of the evening, saying, wow, will you look at what's going on in St. Paul's? So it just goes to show you the smart money often isn't all that smart. No, you're right. And I I mean, we've already talked a lot about how grim these results are for the Liberals, but I I can't let this pass without saying, I mean, if Toronto Centre, if Toronto St. Paul's, if uh, University Rosedale, I mean, if those are not safe Liberal seats anymore, and they do not seem to be two Mm. elections in a row, um, you know, you start to ask really difficult questions about like, where do the Liberals actually start rebuilding from? Absolutely right. Now, let's talk about the decisions that this government is going to have to make in the next four years. What is on the immediate to-do list? Uh, The premier will have to, uh, he doesn't have to name a new cabinet. Uh, The ministers of the old cabinet all still hold their portfolios, Um, but he doesn't have a health minister in place, right? Christine Elliott uh, opted not to run again. She is no longer an MPP, and so he does need a new health minister, and he will probably take that opportunity to make some other changes. Uh, You know, there were people, I I think of people like Stephen Lecce, the education minister, who had a really hard few years there. want to look for another job in cabinet, probably doesn't want to be booted from cabinet, but might want a different job. Uh, They will have to eventually bring the legislature back. Uh, I will remind our listeners that Ontario currently does not have a budget. Uh, Technically, (laughs) the government has interim spending authority until the fall. So uh, it's not clear to me at this moment whether they will bring the House back for a summer sitting or whether they will just punt everything until September. It is possible that they might do that. Um, And then there's a number of deadlines that are coming. Uh, Public sector union negotiations are coming up fast uh, in the summer and fall, both uh, with, uh, well, with teachers unions, perhaps most sharply (laughs) with this government, uh, but with other major unions as well. And so, you know, one question that the government is going to have to ask is, you know, how do they modify or even potentially repeal uh, Bill 124? The, you know, the Premier did say a bit sympathetic to uh, public sector workers who whose salaries are capped at 1% increases, but uh, are having a hard time dealing with inflation of 5, 6, 7% that we've seen in the last year. So they might uh, have to deal with that. They might have to, they might find some way to uh, uh, allow for greater uh, salary increases. We always have to disclose, of course, the TVO as a public sector agency is also bound by Bill 124. Uh, there are a few other things that are coming down the pipeline, but this is already going long. So I'm just going to say that I wrote about <laughs> it for TVO.org. And if people want to uh, go there, uh, some things about solid waste management, the second sexiest of sexy policy topics uh, that the government is going to have to deal with. That's a very McGrath subject to bring up for sure. (laughs) 
Uh, we are going to do our quotes of the week, but just before we get there, I want to remind everyone listening of something, and that is, while we all have a stake in the election's outcome, there can be a tendency when you cover this stuff to treat it all like it's just a horse race. And of course, you know, at the end of the day, we do need to know who won and who lost. I get that. And we also need to remember that as exultant as the Tories feel today, there are thousands of others who are feeling truly lost. And I'm going to start with Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, both of whom really put everything they had into a campaign that didn't move the needle a bit. And their provincial political careers are now apparently over. And I can assure you they are both in real pain today. Probably the same, although to a lesser extent, could be said for Jeremy Roberts in Ottawa West Nepean, in an election campaign where every single one of his former caucus colleagues seeking re-election won. He was the only PC member of the last House seeking re-election who lost. And that's just gotta hurt. I know he's a young man and he'll live to fight another day in politics, but still, it's gotta hurt. I'm not gonna tell you the next candidate's name, but I will tell you a story about them. Uh, one of the former sitting members from the last House, who uh, was a Conservative MPP, who worked really, really hard to get re-elected and was convinced they were going to lose, and one day on the hustings just simply broke down in tears. Now, it turns out they did win. Not by much, but they did. And I'm using the they because I don't want to identify if it's a man or a woman, so I'm saying they. Uh, it's a great reminder of how emotional and heartfelt this democratic exercise is. A lot of people really put their hearts and souls into this. We need to remember that lots of candidates, campaign officials, volunteers, they put everything they've got into this grand consultation with the people, and today the vast majority of them are feeling quite sad because they did not win, and they are probably feeling very confused and hurt, and if they're ex-members, they may be stuck to find their next job for quite a while. Everybody thinks you've been in public life. It's easy to find a job after that. Maybe in the States. Not so here. Doesn't work out that way. If you don't believe me, read my second book, <laughs> The Dark Side, The Personal Price of a Political Life. Anyway, that's my little pitch for some civility and humanity on this day after E-Day. I mean... Humility is also uh, incredibly important in politics. Uh, I remember 2014 and people uh, writing uh, op-eds about how you know Kathleen Wynne was the the new Bill Davis that the Liberals were going to govern the province for another 20 years. Uh, that you know she had totally redefined politics. And four years later, boy, there was a rude awakening there. So you know we are we have watched the pendulum swing in one direction, and you and I will keep an eye on the legislature for the next four. years years and see if maybe it swings back. But, you know, there's a reason that we do pay such close attention to this stuff and the stakes really do matter. And you talked about the horse race and, uh, you know, maybe we are guilty of, uh, you know, having covered it as a horse race. But I think you and I could also fairly claim that we've also tried to give serious attention to the policy stakes and everything in God, the pandemic should have taught us, if, if nothing else, the pandemic should have taught us that the policy decisions that governments make have a body count. And every decision, whether I don't care how small it is, whether it is the, the speed limit on the street outside your house, whether that is a 40 kilometer an hour speed limit or a 30 kilometer an hour speed limit, that that is a decision that has a body count over time. And these stakes are incredibly important. And the reason why people devote their lives to this stuff and why they do invest so much of their heart and their souls and years of their lives into uh, these uh, uh, contests is 
okay, sometimes it's not for the noblest of motives. Sometimes it is vanity. Sometimes it is just, you know, craven uh, desire for power. Uh, but the stakes are incredibly important. Uh, the people of Ontario have made a decision. Y you and I and other members of the Legislative Press Gallery are going to watch for the next four years as we see what the consequences of that decision are. Um, it's not always a fun job, but I am happy to do it here uh, with you and the rest of the team at TVO. Amen. Well said. All right. We do our quotes of the week on Fridays, and we'll present one quote from each of the four major party leaders, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Uh, we also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, uh, same as the podcast, now that we're going back to weekly. <laughs> you can subscribe to that newsletter at tvo.org slash newsletters. Okay, here they come, our quotes of the week from last night's speeches. Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, Stephen Del Duca, Mike Schreiner. And so tonight, I call for unity. And whether you work on the assembly line and voted NDP your entire life or cast your last ballot for the federal liberals, I want you to know that as long as I'm here, there's room for you in this party. I, I'm not shedding tears of, of sadness. I'm shedding tears of pride. Look at you. Look at all of you. Look at what we have done together. Together, my friends, we have built a party that is stronger and more ready to govern than ever before. And as a party, I know that we will redouble our efforts to earn your trust because we don't care where you came from, how long you've been here, who you're connected to, or how much money you have, or what your station in life is. We care that you feel respected. We care that you feel included. We care that you feel seen. And we'll look right past the neighborhood that you live in, rich or poor, rural or urban, north or south, to make sure that you get your chance to succeed. Four years ago, we made history in Guelph, electing Ontario's first Green MPP. And we've made history again re-electing Ontario's first Green MPP. Before we go, uh, one final programming note. As I just mentioned, uh, it is the end of the election. We are returning to weekly episodes that will be released every Tuesday morning at 5 a.m. If you stuck with us through this entire election, we salute you. Uh, I'm amazed that we didn't uh, drive you away. Uh, thank you so much. We do appreciate you listening. We sure do. This week's episodes were produced by Katie O'Connor, editing from Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth, Albert Wisco, and Jonathan Hallowell. Special thanks to Sabrina Nanji for joining us. And that's the On Poly Podcast for June 3rd, 2022. JMM, I will not see you on the hustings, but I will see you next week. Have a restful weekend. It's been a pleasure, Steve. <laughs>